Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to read uh, just the first 19 verses this morning. Um, there's too much going on in this text to treat it adequately uh, as the whole. <clears throat> and keep your Bibles um, uh, at hand and ready. We're going to turn to a number of passages that are close by, um, but uh, they're not going to be up on the screen, so I'm going to have you flip back and forth to get to, this, get to some of these texts. Hear the word of the Lord. Daniel chapter 9, reading verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent the Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing, us, bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your sin, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It's pretty good. Our Father, we, we come before you again as your humble servants. And we ask, the Lord, that as recipients of the Holy Word of God, that you would give us the right reverence and fear and love and the right attitude to receive your Word, or that we would receive it with gratefulness and thanksgiving, that we would meditate upon it, that we would memorize it, that we would seek to pray your word back to you, that we might know 
the God who has made us, the God who has redeemed us, that we might give you the praise that is due to your name. We pray, Lord, in this text this morning, that you would teach us how to repent. You would teach us how to present our prayers before your holy throne in such a way that you would be delighted by your people. You would be delighted by our prayers, knowing, Lord, that we have the mind of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. A number of years ago, uh, Alan and I made a trip to England. And on that trip, we went to visit uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. That's the, the church that Charles Spurgeon used to preach at. If you don't know him, go look him up. A 19th century preacher, sort of the most famous preacher of that century in England. And um, while there, we, we got to hear... Uh, a sermon that was preached from the pulpit, obviously from some other man uh, who is a, a great preacher in his own right. Uh, certainly not Charles Spurgeon, but uh, but it was a very edifying, very encouraging sermon that we received that day. But uh, frankly, I don't remember a single word that he said. But what I do remember were his prayers. But they were just so powerful. They just felt like you, they ushered you right into the presence of God. So the, the next day, we were uh, making our way around uh, England, and we had stopped in the little town of Bedford, uh, which is uh, the place where John Bunyan used to preach. And so we went to go visit his church. Again, John Bunyan is the, the name of the guy who wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. I may have mentioned it before a few times from the pulpit. If, if you've never heard it, please go read it. It's well worth your time. Anyway, there's a museum there that's close by the church. And I think it was closed on the particular day that we went, but the, uh, the lady who was in charge there opened it just for us to go and tour. We were in the museum all by ourselves, wandering around and had a chance to read uh, some of the material in the display cases. And in, in one particular display case, I remember reading some devotional material that he had written. And in it, uh, what he had written sounded an awful lot like the prayer that I had heard in the church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle the day before. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. It's kind of curious. I mean, it sounded very, very similar. And then within a couple of days after that, while we were still on that trip, I remember reading the scriptures, and I was in a particular place in the Old Testament and, and, the, and the prophetical books, and I remember reading a, a prayer that sounded an awful lot like the prayer that had been prayed in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and that also was in the devotional literature that had been written at this small little church in Bedford, England. And it dawned upon me the reason why they sounded so similar because they're following scripture. They're learning to pray God's word back to him. The reason why those prayers were so powerful was because they're God's word himself. And it was moving and it moved my heart. And, and I, up until that time in my life, I can't honestly say that that's how I used the scripture to pray. Um, but in, in, our, in our study this morning in the book of Daniel, we've already learned that Daniel is a man of prayer, right? So we go back to Daniel chapter 6. We remember when... The edict went out from King Darius saying that no one could pray to any god, to any man other than to the king. We, we realized that at that time Daniel got down on his knees, he went up into his upper chamber and he prayed three times as it says, just as was his custom, didn't change his mind whatsoever. He continued to pray the same way. And, and what we have this morning is the content of one of those prayers. In fact, it may even have been the prayer that he prayed on that particular day, because if you look at the, the time signature that's given in the first verse here, it's the same year that Darius made that decree. It's the very first year, and now he's come into power, and now it's it's at this time that, he's, uh, that Daniel's making this kind of prayer. And of course, it wasn't the king's decree that had led Daniel to pray in this way. Rather, it was something else entirely. It was God's promise. God's promise drove Daniel's prayers. Notice in verse 2, back in your text. In the first year of Darius' reign, Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel had been reading God's word. Now it's kind of strange that he would say that because he's reading sort of a contemporary who was just a few years before him, a prophet named Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah's written word, calling it scripture, calling it God's word because God had spoken through him. He had been reading that and had learned from the book of Jeremiah that the time of the exile would be 70 years. 
And so now he's beginning to long to see, well, where is this return from exile? When do we get to go back home, if you will? There are two passages in particular that Jeremiah speaks to this issue. I want us to look at those two passages briefly. Uh, so if you're, gonna, if you're already in the, the book of Daniel, just go back three books in your Bible. It's not hard. You can go back to Ezekiel, Lamentations, and then get to Jeremiah. So turn there, if you would, right now. Jeremiah, we're going to turn to chapter 25. It's very important that we see this and understand the connection between this passage and what Daniel is praying in our passage this morning. So Dan Jeremiah chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. In that passage, God says this. This whole land, meaning the land of Judah, shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now this is a very important passage to Daniel and his contemporaries because they had been living in exile for almost seven years now. And now Babylon has just been conquered. The king of Babylon has been killed. And so everything that so far that has been written in Jeremiah chapter 25 has come to pass. So this is good news, right? But there's more to this story, and that, that's why you need to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. It gives you a little bit more to the background. In Jeremiah chapter 29, most of you are familiar with verse 11. You all take it out of context. You all have one time or another. But in chapter 29, beginning verse 10 through 14, here's what the Lord says to that generation. He says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, meaning back to Judah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you, into exile. Now, what we learn from this particular passage now is that Daniel and his contemporaries are living in between the fulfillment of Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. The first half has come to pass, but yet God's people have not yet been returned to their to the promised land. So uh, we know that Babylon is overthrown historically in the year 539 BC. So more than likely this is the year that Daniel's praying this prayer, 539 BC, you can sort of ingrain that in your memory. But basically, what we know as well, that Daniel and his friends were likely taken captive and brought to Babylon in the year 605 BC. So that gives us about 66 years that at least Daniel and his friends have been in Babylon. Now, how do you, how do you uh, gauge the 70-year time period? Some people left before and after Daniel, and some people returned before and after. Actually, Daniel doesn't return, he dies in that land more than likely, but nevertheless, it's around 70 years. So this is now the 66th year for Daniel being in the land of Babylon. And, and now uh, he sees that the time is, is coming to an end. And so he sets his face toward Jerusalem to pray, knowing that this fulfillment is about to take place. Does that seem strange to you? So I just told you, God had promised to bring them back after 70 years. And we're only within maybe a year of that happening. Why does Daniel bother to pray about it at all? God already said he's going to do it. So why pray? Think about that for a minute. Because every aspect of our prayer is going to come into uh, this type of questioning in just a minute. But notice Daniel is, is not praying for something that he wants in and of himself. He's praying for something that has already been promised by God. It's, but it's, it's not as if the, the promise is conditional. So in other words, God never said to Daniel or to the Israelites, I will bring you back to the land of Israel if you repent. He did say, I will bring you back to the land of Israel if you, you know, change your ways and you start keeping God's laws. Uh, if you pray to me, then I will bring you back to the land. It doesn't say anything like that. It just simply says, this is the promise. 
After, after seven years, I will bring you back to the land. I will restore, or restore you to that land. Now, I want you to look at one other passage that might make sense of this. Um, turn to the book of Ezekiel. Again, we're really close by. You're just going back uh, one book from, from uh, Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 33 through 38. I think this, this brings a lot of this into the light very clearly. Ezekiel 36, verses 33 through 38. Beginning in verse 33, thus says the Lord God to the Jews, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt. So he's talking about when they return to the land. And he says, And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and I have replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Alright, so this is God's promise. He's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to do it. It's all this I language. I will do it. I will accomplish this, right? But now look at verse 37. Very, very fascinating passage. Verse 37, 38. Now God says this. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase their people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices. Like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Did you catch that? He just told them he's going to do this. He's promised that he's going to do all this. But then he says, but I'm going to let you ask me to do this. You catch that? Very important. Every aspect of your prayers is something that God has already promised. You're not changing God's mind. But God is wanting you to ask. And through your asking, he accomplishes his will. Very plain, very simple. But we get confused on this very often. We always have a hard time balancing God's sovereignty and what is our role in all of this. But but in verse 38, he says, I'm going to let you ask me to do that which I just promised you that I'm going to do, so that when I answer it, you can say, This is the Lord our God. He wants you to praise him in the end because he's using your prayers to accomplish his holy will. Now, this is not some isolated incident. In the Old Testament. Okay, just need to know that from the very beginning. Think about it. The Lord's Prayer alone. The one that we just prayed that Mark just led us in. Every aspect of that prayer is actually a promise of God. There's not a single thing in it that God has not already promised that He's going to do. Think about it. Hallowed be thy name. We pray that. Is that not something that God's already intended on doing? Is that not something God has already promised that He would do? Uh, think about John chapter 12, verse 28. Jesus is praying this type of prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Glorify your name in, in the garden. And, and as Jesus prays this, the Father is answering. It says that he hears a voice from heaven, and it says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Not like in a sort of a corrective way, but rather just saying, yes, that, that's my intention. Yes, I will do that. I will answer that request, because that's exactly my mind. That's my will. That's what I want to do. In the same way, we pray, thy kingdom come. Has, has Christ promised that his kingdom would come? If you look at the book of Revelation alone, five times, Jesus says, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. So why are we praying that he should come? He's already promised that he is. Because he's going to come through our prayers. It's through the instrumentation of our prayers that he accomplishes his will. In fact, the very verse that is next to the last verse of the Bible. Jesus says, one more time, I'm coming. And then there's a prayer right after that. What's the prayer? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You're, you're, we're being taught to pray the very thing that God has just promised that he said he's going to do. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And of course, you'll, you'll find the same thing regarding every other aspect of the petition of the Lord's prayer as well. God has promised that he will accomplish his will. He's promised that he will provide for our daily bread. He's promised that he will deliver us from our temptations. He's promised all of these things. And yet he exhorts us to pray for these same things. Why? 
Because God ordinarily carries out His will, not in some miraculous way, apart from men, but ordinarily through the instrumentation of our prayers. It's the same way with evangelism. Now, God could save people without our help whatsoever. He could immediately bring His Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin, and they're saved. But is that His ordinary way of doing things? No. He works through people. He works through the saints to carry out His will. He does the same thing in prayer. Why do you pray? Because God uses your prayer to accomplish His holy will. Your prayers are not pointless. They're not futile. You're actually doing something very powerful as God works through the power of His own Word in your prayers. And we see this again and again uh, in Scripture. So what's happening in this particular passage, it's the Holy Spirit who is moving Daniel to pray the very things that he's just read in Scripture. And so he's praying and asking God for the very things he's just read. And particularly, he's praying that some aspect of this would come about in the near future. Now, if you compare the timing of Daniel's prayer to that of the decree of Cyrus, the, the Cyrus's edict in which he allows God's people to go home, you go back and you look at Ezra chapter 1, and you go back and you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's right after Daniel's prayer that God brings his people home. The timing of this, God is moving Daniel and men like Daniel to pray, and then now the heart of the king has moved, and he allows his people to go home. There's a direct correlation between the prayer and the accomplishment of God's will. The question is, do you believe today that God can move the heart of the king by your prayers? Today, do you believe that God accomplishes anything through your prayers? Because Scripture is telling us again and again, this is exactly how He chooses to work through the prayers of His people. I'll give you one other example, New Testament. If you turn there, Revelation chapter 8. This is a, a fascinating passage that should encourage all of us as God's people. Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. There John sees an angel, and the angel's holding a golden censer in his hand. Now this is the Again, this is apocalyptic literature. You're seeing something in between heaven and earth. So you're seeing sort of the earthly temple, and then you're seeing something of the heavenly temple, and the angels sort of have standing between these two places, right? And, and, and John sees this angel. He's holding a golden censer in his hand, and he comes and he stands before the golden altar of incense in the Holy of Holies, right? And his, his censer, in, in that censer, he's given incense to offer to God that's accompanied that is accompanying the prayers of the saints. And it says, as the smoke of the incense rises above the temple, sort of like the earthly temple, the smoke is rising, it's accompanying the prayers of God's people. So again, keep in mind, in, in, the, in the tabernacle, later in the, the temple, there's a, there's a holy place, right? And in that holy place, you got three pieces of furniture. The one that's closest uh, to the Ark of the Covenant is the, the golden altar of incense. What's the purpose of that? altar. That's where the, the high priest would go in and he would offer prayers on behalf of Israel. They would come in with incense, right? And as the incense was burned, the smoke is wafting up into the heavens. It's meant to represent that God's people's prayers are being heard by God. You follow me? Now notice in this passage, again, we'll, we'll get to this when we cover Revelation, but in the book of Revelation, when God brings his judgment upon the earth, how does it happen? He's describing the angel giving his incense along with the prayers of the people. And that's what moves God's hand to bring forth the judgment of God. All of a sudden, the same incense now turns into fire and God throws the fire upon the earth and cleanses it of all evil. It happens as a result of the prayers of the saints very important that we get this. Of course, God doesn't immediately bring forth judgment every time you pray. Thank God that he doesn't, right? Because most of the time we're, we're probably praying wrongly. God works through our prayers, the weakness of our prayers, etc., etc., but he nevertheless hears our prayers and responds accordingly. There's a passage in the Old Testament that's a very encouraging one for the saints of God. In Psalm 56, verse 8, just, you don't have to turn there now, but if you want to, you can. David says, that God keeps count of all of his tossings. 
and that God keeps all of his tears as in a bottle and then he records all of his prayers in a book why because God plans on using every single one of these tears these groans these prayers to accomplish his holy will what God is doing in Revelation is the accumulation of the prayers of the saints throughout every generation every single time you have thought to yourself you've, you've even said out loud I feel like I'm praying to the ceiling you know what I'm talking about we've all thought this God's saying that's not true I've kept everyone I've written down everyone and I will carry out my perfect holy will through your prayers your prayers matter your prayers are accomplishing God's holy will as he continues to teach us his own mind this is what he's doing in fact if you go back through the Old Testament you'll see time and time again that God is taking action according to the prayers of God's people this is this is the norm this is not the exception in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 you remember when God reveals himself in the burning bush the fiery burning bush to Moses right and he says, I'm about to do something. Do you, know, do you remember why he says he's about to do something? He says, because I have heard the prayers, the groanings of my people, and now I'm raising you up as a deliverer to save them from the Egyptians. He's saying, I've heard your prayers for the past 400 years, and now I'm taking action according to all of those prayers that I've heard. He hasn't missed a one. He's now bringing about his perfect holy will do the same thing. As sad as the book of Judges is, we see this again. There's a uh, definitely a degrading spiral that happens throughout. But every single time the people of God cry out, God raises up a deliverer to save them because of their prayers. Even though the scriptures makes the point of showing their prayers are horrible. They're not good, they're not clean, they're not pure, they're mixed with all sorts of evil, and yet God is still hearing their prayers and carrying out his will accordingly so the question is why is this particular prayer of Daniel's recorded for us in scripture it's not merely so that we can see that God answers our prayers but also that we can see something of a model for the prayers in which we're meant to pray uh, we, we're, we're beginning to see that what Daniel is doing here is no different than what any of the forefathers had done prior to him they're simply praying the promises of God back to him they're learning what God's will is in scripture and then they're learning to ask for the very things that God wants to carry out that he wants to accomplish uh, and, and that's what we're saying the same thing that the Metropolitan Tabernacle of Spurgeon with John Bunyan and all those who come after them they're simply appropriating the Word of God and learning to let the Word of God filter their minds desires and then letting it shape the will of each saint to want the things that God wants for us. That's what he's doing. In the same manner, we, we, we find the same phraseology, if you will, between the prayers of Daniel and the prayers of Moses. Look, look at verse 4 of our text. There Daniel begins his prayer addressing God, saying this. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is how he begins the prayer. But you'll notice that the, the content of Daniel's prayer is not original to Daniel. In fact, if you just go back to Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5, where we have the context of the Ten Commandments, both of those passages refers to this God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. But then, after Deuteronomy 5, there's another passage in Deuteronomy 7, verse 21. And in that passage, Moses addresses God this way. To the great and awesome God in our midst. Now you put that together with what he says in Deuteronomy 5. You could say in a bad sort of way that Daniel is not praying his own prayers. You could say that he's stealing the prayers of Moses. But really what he's doing is he's just using scripture. He's praying the same revealed word that God had given to Moses is the same revealed word that God gives to Daniel is the same revealed word that God gives to us. We're learning to pray 
the scripture. That's why it's going to sound very similar between the difference between a 19th century Baptist pastor and a 16th, 17th century pastor and a pastor today. The reason why the prayers are sound very similar is because it's the same word of God that's teaching us how to pray. Similar manner, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. So Ezra and Nehemiah, if you don't know the scriptures well, Ezra and Nehemiah are referring to the people of God after they've come back to the promised land, right? So now it's telling us what's happened. And in Nehemiah 1.5, we find a prayer of Nehemiah that's recorded once the people have returned. And, and here's what he says in the beginning of this particular prayer in Nehemiah 1. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Does that not sound similar? Does it not sound word for word like a plagiarist prayer? Why? Because he's learning to pray according to how God has revealed himself to us. He's learning to pray according to what God's works have been revealed, what God plans on doing. They're learning to pray in the same way. And so we, we find that throughout Scripture. You're going to hear these words again and again, the same type of phrase because they're learning to pray God's Word. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me and tell me at some point in my ministry, I don't know how to pray. Like, well, none of us do. <laughs> right? How do you learn how? You read God's Word. And you pray it back to him. You're learning to internalize what God has revealed about himself, what God expects of us, and what God plans on doing. And you learn to pray that back to him. And then you begin to form the same desires. You want the same things that God wants. You're not... You're, so I, I used to uh, make fun of it a little bit, but uh, uh, my, my mother loved to read God's word, but I don't think she really prayed that much. My dad liked to pray, but didn't like to read God's Word. I think you guys got to get together somehow and make this work. Because that's how it's meant to work. You're not, you're, not, you're not reading the Bible and then shutting it and then say, well, now I have my prayer list over here. No, I'm, not, I'm not saying that every prayer you have to uh, pray has to have the exact words of Scripture. But what I'm saying is it should affect the way we're praying. It should affect what we're asking for. Right? Even the Lord's Prayer. We've talked about this, right? The Lord's Prayer... Does it start out with my prayer list of my my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, my dog, my cat, all the things that are concerning to me? What does it start with? Hallowed be thy name. Do you think that it should be about my dog or cat first? No. Every aspect of scripture is teaching us the same thing. It's teaching us how to pray. What we ought to want to ask for in prayer. So if we're not letting the word of God affect us, then we're not really praying. We're just giving a list of God, the things that we want. I don't know if that's really prayer. It's just a selfish list. That's all it is. Because we're not learning to take the self out of it and learning to ask for what God actually has created us to ask for. There's a big difference. But there's a level of faith that's needed. It's, don't, it's not just simply, well, I'm going to get out of the Bible, I'm just going to pray. But there's a level of faith that's needed in this endeavor because it takes faith to believe God's Word to then ask for the things that God has promised us, right? In the book of James, James talks about the prayer of faith, right? The prayer of faith is not referring to, well, I believe that God will give me whatever I want at any time, right? That, you know, I, I want a hundred bucks, so I'm going to pray for that, and I'm going to get a hundred bucks tomorrow that I'm going to spend on candy. What does he mean? Why does it have to take faith? Because you're having to believe that what you're asking for God has promised to give to you. And if you pray according to God's word, you know you have the answer, and then at the end, you know where the praise goes. You know who gets the glory. You didn't change God's mind. You're never going to change God's mind. But God wants to use your prayers to accomplish His holy will. To me, that is outstanding. That He would want to lower Himself to use our prayers in that way. But that's how He likes to work. Of course, you already notice that Daniel begins his prayer with the note of praise. He's acknowledging something of God's greatness, something of his faithfulness, something of his covenant-keeping ability. We, we know he's doing this because this is how God has revealed himself to us. But he also begins with this note of adoration, this, this note of praise, because that's who God is, right? But not every prayer has to begin in the same way. Uh, we don't always have to open up with adoration, even though it's a good model to follow. You'll find in the Psalms, there are a number of Psalms that the psalmist immediately just says, Help me, Lord. 
He makes an immediate petition, doesn't start with adoration, but you also notice that throughout the rest of the psalm, he sort of mingles in some adoration as he's going along. Because he's, re he's reflecting again upon who God is and how great he is, who can help him in the midst of his trials and as he's making his petitions, right? But you'll notice in this particular prayer, it's not really what you would call a jubilant prayer. It's not a, a, a praise of adoration primarily, but rather one of lamentation, one of mourning, one of repentance. It's a, it's a, it's a very uh, a severe prayer, one that is it's very deep and full of grief in, in Daniel's heart. He's primarily pleading with, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, we read in verse 3. The overall tone is, is one of mourning. Now, why is, David, why is Daniel mourning in this particular way? I mean, after all, we, he just read in, Daryl, in, in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29 that the Babylonians, now that they have been conquered, God's people can go home. You would think that maybe Daniel would be praying a prayer of thanksgiving, right? He'd be ecstatic. We're going home. But he's not praying that way. Why? Instead, he's praying a prayer of mourning. Well, it may have something to do with what we read last week. For those of you who weren't here last week, the passage that we had read was a very uh, strange, another apocalyptic vision that he received. And the vision was in the future, hundreds of years in the future, in fact, in which God's people have already returned home to the promised land. And yet, because of their sin, there's some great enemy that is raised up who's going to persecute them to death. And again, if you, if you, if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, go back and read that passage this Antiochus Epiphanes is a very brutal character in history, very brutal character in Scripture. He hates God's people and wants to kill them. And Daniel has just received this vision just a year prior to this, that now he's making this prayer, and this is what's on his mind. He's like, so, so God's people are returning home, yay! Uh, but they're going to go home, and, and when they get home, they're going to be persecuted greatly because they haven't changed their hearts. They haven't changed their ways. They still are worshiping idols. They're still sinning against the Lord. So is this really that great? In fact, if you go back and you read Ezra and Nehemiah, these books I'm talking about, oh, that's recording for us the history of what happens to God's people, go back, what, what is it a record of? It's not a record of a great restoration. Rather, it's a record of more sin. It's a record of them breaking God's law again and again, them intermarrying with unbelievers, constantly worshiping idols, and Ezra and Nehemiah, what are they known for? Pulling out their hair. Why? Because God's people are no different. And so, part of Jeremiah's prophecy that Daniel's reading at this time, he's also reading, there's another aspect to this that hasn't yet happened as well. This new heart. This new covenant that God has promised in which God's people will have the law of God written on their hearts and want to serve Him and want to walk with Him and want what He wants. Learning to have the desires of God. And so Daniel is in deep remorse and contrition and he's praying prayers of repentance on behalf of all of God's people saying, we're nowhere near what we ought to be to return to the promised land because we know it's just going to become a place of desolation all over again. And that's exactly what happens. It's called the abomination of desolation because of their sin. So it was desolate. They were gone for seven years. They returned home. And then in a, a few hundred years after that, it's desolate again because they haven't changed. It's no different. And so now Daniel is praying these fervent prayers unto God saying, Lord, have mercy upon us. Give us this heart that would know you, that would love you, that would want to serve you. Because so what? We get the promised land back. It doesn't mean anything if you're not there. So what? There's more to it than this. And Daniel's seeing the big picture here. And so in, in, in verse 13, notice uh, the, the people of God are not humbled at all by their exile. There, there he prays for, for them and for himself. He says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has now come upon us. We've been gone for seven years. He says, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Over and over again, Daniel keeps saying the same thing. You have given us your judgment, and yet we haven't changed our minds. We haven't changed our hearts. 
We're still full of sin. We have no desire to seek your face. What good is this going to end up with? It's not going to, it's not going to end well at all. And so he's praying that the Lord would have mercy upon them. But notice the, the, the language of belonging that he keeps using here. This is an aspect of adoration as well as confession. But he keeps saying, you know, to you, O Lord, belong righteousness. To you belongs justice. You, you've done exactly what you said you would do. You've been faithful to your word. You've kept your promises. That's the very reason why we're here in Babylon right now, because you promised us way back in the book of Deuteronomy that this very thing would happen if we did not seek your face and we worshiped idols instead, we would end up in this foreign land. This has happened. To you belongs all this. And so the, the sovereign treaty, uh, the book of Deuteronomy literally means a second telling of the law for the second generation, but basically it's a, it's a, a treaty between a king and his vassals. And the king is saying, as long as you seek to obey my laws, you will live in my land, and you will live under my protection and have my provision, but if you don't do that, you're going to be kicked out. It's really not, it's not that hard of him to expect that. I think any king would do the same, right? So he kicks them out, sends them to Babylon, and then they're going to come back and they're still not going to follow his laws. He says it can't stay this way. And so Daniel's praying that even though, even though it belongs to God to be righteous and just, he's saying, but Lord, it also belongs to you to be merciful. You've also promised that. So now Daniel's praying the promises of God in reference to his mercy, saying, Lord, be merciful. Lord, forgive. You said that you would. Give us the heart that would desire this type of mercy. Give us the heart that would want to come back as the prodigal son, if you will. And so he's praying in, in this manner. In fact, we, again, we see uh, that when all this happens uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, it, it takes a long time before this, this occurs. But Daniel's been reading all this in, in Jeremiah 29. And so... Anyone who's known the Lord for very long understands this. Um, none of us ever ask for God to give us justice, right? You never ask God, Lord, give me judgment. I want you to judge me. We would be absolute idiots to pray that, right? You don't ever pray that. Because there's not a single person here who can stand before God as a sinless person and say there's nothing, no sin that you can see or, or point out in me. Instead, every single time the, the, the relationship of sin and humans come up, we're pleading for mercy. If we have a heart for God, we plead for mercy because we know that God is merciful. And so His, His promise moves us to pray, Lord, have mercy because you're merciful. Right? And that's exactly what He's doing. Apart from apart from this promise, we have no hope. Apart from Christ's sacrifice, we have no hope. And so this is, this is where it's pointing. So uh, uh, for a brief two seconds here, I'm going to take you out of the context. Jeremiah, excuse me, Daniel in this particular passage is not pointing us to Christ directly. He'll do that in a little bit in, in the next part of the chapter we're not covering today. But basically what he's saying is, okay, so you've brought God's people. You're going to bring them back to God's place. You're going to bring them back under God's law. But immediately they're going to lose God's blessing because they don't have a heart for God. How does that change? In the second part of this chapter we'll get to next week, he's promising that there's someone who's coming. There's someone who's coming who is a perfect individual who's going to lay down his life for you. He's going to die in your place. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. But he's going to die for your sins. And as a result of his sacrifice, you can have mercy. And so he's praying already for this one to be revealed. He's praying urgently for this one to come that God's people would not be under God's wrath and curse as they have been in the past. Notice the language of belonging. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. To you, O Lord, belongs mercy. What belongs to us, he says? What belongs to us is open shame. And yet Christ comes and becomes the shameful one. He comes as the naked man on the cross in which everyone is pouring out their wrath and condemnation upon him, cursing him as he is taking on our sins. Because that's what we deserve. But he prays for mercy. Why does Daniel pray for mercy in this way? You might think that Daniel is praying for mercy because he loves his people. Right? It's a good reason. Maybe Daniel's praying for mercy because he loves himself. Right? That's another good reason. But that's not the primary reason why he's praying this prayer at all. He's not praying 
merely for his people. He's not praying merely for himself, but rather the primacy of his prayer is not for his sake, is not for the sake of his people, but for whom? For the sake of the Lord. Go back in this text, notice how many times he says, for your sake, do this. For your sake, accomplish everything that you have promised in your word. For your sake, do this. And, and if there's something I, I want you to I want you to be able to take home today more than anything else I've, I've said about prayer, it's this. All prayer that is prayed according to Scripture is prayed according to this end. That God's name would be glorified. The very commandment in Scripture, the greatest commandment is what? Not to love your fellow man. Not to love yourself. But to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And therefore, when you pray, if you want to pray according to the greatest commandment in Scripture, you're going to pray according to God's cause, according to God's sake, according to God's glory, according to God's splendor, every single aspect. So if you think about how do I know if I love God, well, one of the easiest ways to be able to tell is that when you go to God in prayer, are you praying merely for yourself? Are you praying merely for your, your people that you love, your friends, your neighbors, maybe your fellow churchmen? Are you praying for God's glory to be known? I love you with all of our hearts so that your name would be praised amongst our neighbors, amongst the Gentiles, amongst the pagans. Do all of this for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your mercy, for the sake of your love, for the sake of your power, for the sake of your wisdom. Every aspect of this is for God, not for himself, not for his neighbor. The reason why we have these types of prayers written out for us almost entirely in Scripture is to help us see what we ought to be praying for. Our prayers are too small, you see. He wants us to expand them to see how do we love God. And we learn to love God through our prayers as we learn to love God through His Word. Every aspect of our prayers should be done for the sake of His name. Every aspect of our prayers should be done for the sake of seeing his name glorified in one way or another. Uh, and, and again, that might seem counterproductive to you. Like, well, God told me I can pray for whatever I want. That's true, he can. And he's very merciful and he's very patient with us as we pray really bad prayers. Raise your hand if you've ever prayed a bad prayer. The Holy Spirit works through our bad prayers even to accomplish his holy will. But wouldn't it be better if our prayers were at least a little bit more in line with what he wants? There's a passage in Psalm 37, verse 4. I've gone back to this one numerous times. David says this, delight yourself in the Lord, and what will happen? He will give you the desires of your heart. But if you do it backwards, and instead you delight yourself in yourself, and in what you want, you will never delight yourself in God. It starts with delighting yourself in God, and then you will find that whatever your desires are, God wants to give them to you. It starts with your orientation. Are you going to love God with your heart first? If you love Him first, then you will find that you know how to love everybody else. And you will find that God has given you the joy that you've been looking for all along. But the problem is, all of us, Jeremiah keeps saying, we keep going to this stupid, broken well, looking for water, but there's tiny, a little trickle. There's nothing there. We keep going there as, as an idol and saying, fill me up, satisfy me. It will never satisfy when he says, I am a fountain, a well of life. Come to me and drink freely and you will be satisfied and you will never have to drink anywhere else ever again. Why would you go to that broken well? It makes no sense. But that's what we do. That's idolatry. That's foolishness. That's sin. And so God keeps telling us through this, if we go to the Lord first, we will find the desires of our heart. And so every aspect of our prayer as we're learning to understand what God wants and what God desires and matching our will and our desires to His, we'll find that our prayers will have these words in them more than any other phrase. For your sake, O oh Lord, do this. For your sake, do this. Not just as a, as a phrase that you just throw out there, but it's something you really mean. You really want, you really desire. You begin to pray, for your sake, O oh Lord, help me to forgive my brother. I don't want to, <laughs> but for your sake, so that the world can see that God forgives sinners. For your sake, help me to forgive. For your sake, help me to love that person that I don't love. 
For your sake, help me to endure this trial, rather than just complaining about my trials. For your sake, help me to endure. Why? So that your name would be glorified through the midst of my trials. For your sake, help me to submit to every human institution. Instead of complaining about all those people that I'm supposed to submit to, help me to submit to them for your sake. That's exactly what Peter, I, by the way, I'm just quoting scripture to you here. For your sake, he says, for your sake, may I be content with my weakness. For your sake, may I be content with insults. Bring on the insults. For your sake, O Lord. For your sake, may I be content with hardships and persecution and calamities. Lord, you've called us not only to believe for your sake, but also to suffer for your sake. To count all things as loss for the sake of Christ. Not for my own sake, but for his sake. And of course, that, that one psalm, Psalm 115, verse 1, sort of encapsulates all this. Every aspect of our life. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name be glory. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love. For the sake of your faithfulness. We pray all these things for your sake. If I don't get anything through to you today, this is how he wants us to pray. But only if we want to. You follow me? So we have to pray first, Lord, give us the desire to want things for your sake. Because right now I just want them for my own sake. And my own sake kind of stinks. And it's not getting me anywhere. And my prayers are literally going to the ceiling and going nowhere else. But for your sake, I want to know that my prayers count. That you're doing something through them. That Christ's name is being glorified. And I'm learning to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul. All my strength. Amen? Amen. It's pretty good. <coughs> Our Father, we do come to you and we know that you're so patient with us, with the people who, who don't really even know what we want. We think we know what we want, but then when we go for that particular thing, that idol in our hearts, it just leaves us so miserable, so empty. Life is so vain, so worthless. And yet we've played the fool a thousand times and have continued to go to it like a pig that continues to go back to the mud, like a dog that continues to return to its vomit. We, we've done this. We, we know what it's like. We know that bitterness. Lord, we pray that you would teach us what it means to live for your sake, to find our delight in your name, and then find that our desires are also acceptable in your sight. Work on our will. Work on our desires. Lord, help us to see that Christ has shamed himself because of our shame. That we might share his righteousness. That we might share his glory. So that even when we pray that your name would be glorified, somehow we can share.